If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, but we are going to be standing for just a brief moment because we are only going to read verse 14. So will you stand with us? This morning, for the sake of time, I'm going to read just the seventh commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. And all God's people said... Camille, are you ready to lead the closing song? (laughs) What is the law of God as stated in the Ten Commandments? We've been working through this as a congregation. So the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Very good. You shall not make... You shall not make for yourself an idol. Yeah, very good. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Very good. And the fourth commandment is remember the day by keeping it holy. Remember the Sabbath day. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Very good. And then the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Yeah, that was last week with Brother Wayne. And then we help you with the rest of them. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony and you shall not covet. These are the Ten Commandments. Each week, we've also been looking at a big picture question. And this week, I want us to consider why we should obey the Ten Commandments. Or to put the question just slightly differently, what is it that motivates our obedience to the Ten Commandments? So let me first answer that question in the negative. What should not motivate our obedience to the commandments? And let me be very clear. If you are given to the idea that somehow your obedience to the Ten Commandments will earn you favor with God, that it will be the way that you will be accepted by God into heaven, then you've misunderstood. You've misunderstood the nature of the gospel, and you've misunderstood the nature of God's word, because we are literally unable to do this because of our fallen and sinful nature. God did not create humans unable to keep his law, but because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we are born in sin and guilt, and we are unable to keep God's law. So please do not walk away today and think, if I can just try harder, if I could just try to stop lusting so much, if I could just stop looking at pornography, if I could just not commit adultery, God will be pleased with me and I will be accepted by him into heaven. That is a works understanding of salvation. The Bible teaches us that we are all sinners and we've all broken the commandments of God and so we need God's grace. In fact, it was the grace of God that rescued the people of Israel out of slavery to sin. You see, the nature of our sin inside of us, all it takes is it takes the list of things. We love lists, don't we? Human beings want a list. What should I do? What shouldn't I do? And so people naturally will gravitate to the Ten Commandments and say, if I can just do this list, 
the best I can. God's got to see that I'm just doing my level best. That's what we try to do. And so the Bible teaches us that the law, the Ten Commandments, is twisted by our sinful nature. That's what Romans 7 verse 5 says. It says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We take the law and we say, uh, I, I want to try and obey and I want to try and do this, but then we fail. And all it serves to show us is that we are not able to keep it. Or even worse, we look at it and we say, this is a good and holy and righteous thing. And God says, you shall not covet. And then all of a sudden, because of our nature, we just want to covet all the time. That's what Paul says happened to him. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you in your own heart, when somebody tells you not to do something, that's when you're really tempted to go and do it. This is what our sin nature does to the good and righteous law, because Paul tells us that the law is holy and righteous and good. So we learn that the sin in, our, in ourselves takes the law and twists it to our demise. So we need to know that that is not what motivates obedience, not keeping a checklist of commandments. On the positive side, what should motivate our obedience is love for Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So as we've been studying this catechism, one of the questions was, how can we glorify God? And the answer was, by loving him and obeying his commands and law. Out of love, we are motivated to obedience. And then what does the law require? That we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So one reason to obey is out of love for the redemption that Jesus has already brought in your life. Remember, God did not say to the Israelites, obey these rules and I'll rescue you from Egypt. He rescued them from sin and their enslavement and then told them how to obey and how to live. Grace always precedes the path of freedom. So let me add a second reason to obey the commandments. So obedience out of love. But the second reason would be by the power of the Holy Spirit, we come to see the law is the right path of freedom. Freedom, the way we should live. The law has lost its condemning power, but the commandments teach us how to live, how to find freedom and flourishing. This is what the choir just sang. Your spirit lives within me. So I will walk in your what? Peace. I will walk in your peace. We come to a place where by the power of the Holy Spirit, we live out obediently to the commands and find freedom and flourishing. I think about this regularly. I'll be driving home from, from work and I'll look over this way and that way and I'll see families and, and houses and I'll think to myself, thank you, Lord, for your law. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom I have in Christ and by the power of the Spirit to obey it because I am free from all of the various ways that we can go off track, 
that lives can be destroyed and ruined by decisions that are not in keeping with the law of God. The Bible says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And if we will find because of grace and out of love, not to earn God's favor, but because of it, the Holy Spirit teaching us to be obedient will find freedom and flourishing. This is the goal of the law for the Christian, a light for us, a path for us to obey. Alec Motyer writes that the Ten Commandments is the Bible's fundamental statement of the law of liberty, a law of freedom. The fact is that even though it's mainly a series of prohibitions, you shall not, we've often misconstrued that to think that the commandments are negative in tone, that God is up there just whacking all the things that we love and saying, don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other thing. But if you think about it, this, is, this way of thinking forgets that a negative commandment is far more liberating than a positive one. If you're given a positive, you have to do this, then you only have one thing to do. And if you don't do that, everything else that you could do is bad. It's wrong. But if you flip it around and you say, you can only not do this one thing, then you're left open a whole host of other opportunities. It's like God in the garden, he said, you can't eat from one tree, one tree. And they had to pick the one bad one. There were all these other trees with fruit and opportunities. God was giving them a law of freedom. And the same is true of the Ten Commandments. True freedom, one author says, this is worth writing down. True freedom is enjoying the benefits of doing what we should. True freedom is enjoying the benefits of doing what we should. I know too many people whose lives are destroyed or bound because of their disobedience to God's good commandments. He is our creator, and he knows what will make us flourish. So I want us to see now, with this in mind, how the seventh commandment is designed for our freedom and designed for our flourishing. The seventh commandment, again, it states, you shall not commit adultery. Now, what I want to do is get to the obvious, right? When I stood and read, this is the point, Okay, this is going to be the the big crescendo of the message. I'm going to get here, but I want to go there by way of broader application first. So like last week when Brother Wayne was saying there are other ways you shall not murder was expounded upon in the New Testament. Like don't even hate your neighbor. We're going to look at the broader application first and then get to the commandment itself, which is pretty specific about adultery and consider why. And we'll put the greater emphasis on adultery itself. But let's start with the broad application. So the seventh commandment has a broad application. The New City Catechism puts it well when it says, when we are obeying the seventh commandment, we are living purely and faithfully. This impacts a lot of our lives when we are obedient to the seventh commandment. 
Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes the commandments and helps us see that in God's eyes, there is more involved in them than it comes to meet the eye at first appearance. He's concerned with our heart. So for example, in Matthew 5, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the commandment. But I, Jesus says to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that word with lustful intent is the Greek word epithumeo. It's not just to notice somebody. It means to desire, covet, or long for. Hear me clearly. Noticing someone is attractive is not a sin. It's when you desire, covet, and long for that it becomes epithumeo, which is lust, which is a sin. My pastor growing up said something that stuck with me. So young person, maybe you're here and you're hearing me for the first time. Think about it like this. It's not a sin when you're driving down the road to see somebody walking down the street and think, wow, that was an attractive person. The sin is looking in the rearview mirror or worse, taking another trip around the block. Have you heard me? Okay, that is epithumeo. And that is what should not be in our hearts. In Mark's gospel, we read that it is out of our hearts. Verse 21 of chapter 7, from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit. There's a lot of things here. Sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So while it may be a better world... When bullets are not flying around actually murdering people, the truth is we wouldn't have any bullets flying around murdering people if the heart was truly addressed. Similarly, things like sexual immorality, that word in Mark is the Greek word porneia. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Porneia. It comes from the heart. And that word porneia covers a host of sexual sins, unlawful sexual intercourse, prostitution, unchastity, fornication, illicit sexual practices, adultery, and homosexuality. Basically, anything outside of marriage between a man and a woman. So if you're wondering if it is a stretch to see the prohibition of all of those various forms of sexual immorality, including something like homosexuality, in this seventh commandment, then I invite you to look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Because what's happening in 1 Timothy is Paul is glancing through the second table of the law. He has in mind the second table. Remember, we've discussed this maybe two weeks ago, where the second table deals with our relationship with other people, our horizontal uh, relationships We love our neighbor as ourselves. And so what Paul is doing is he's going through verse by verse here. He's covering uh, and connecting to the second table, which is in his mind. So beginning in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1, he says, We know that the law is good. It's not the law's fault. We twist the law by our sin. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners... For the unholy and profane, and here he begins, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, that's the fifth commandment. For murderers, that's the sixth commandment. 
And then verse 10 begins, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, that's the seventh commandment, enslavers, which doesn't sound like the eighth, but the word there is man-stealers. What Paul has in mind is stealing somebody else, kidnapping. So theft, the eighth commandment. Liars and perjurers, he's going through the list. Do you track with that? And do you see how if you lay the second table over what Paul's talking about, he's making application by talking through these commands and drawing out other logical implications from them. And so he says, porneia, sexual immorality, is breaking the seventh. He's tying it there just in his mind as he's walking through them. And he also says, arson okoitais. I'm sorry if I screwed up the Greek there, but that's the best I could do. And he is using a combination of two Greek words that are found in Leviticus that relate to man and sexual intercourse. And he finds those words from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the original Hebrew Old Testament, and he puts them together and makes up a word that would point a a scholarly person back to that and says, that is also breaking of the seventh commandment. So the point in all this is to say, there is an internal moral logic that flows out of the forbidding of adultery and the priority of marriage in the rest of the Bible and what Jesus teaches and what the New Testament writers extrapolate that give broader implications and application to the seventh commandment. So even though this verse is short, the message of the whole of Scripture about sexual morality requires us to at least take this survey first. All right, so we've seen now a broader sense of the application of the seventh commandment. But having done that, after looking at this first, I want us to get laser focused on verse 14 and what the commandment specifically prohibits, which is adultery. The seventh commandment specifically forbids adultery. Why? It is because marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime is part of the fabric of society and the basis of human flourishing. It is for our good to understand the importance of marriage. Dwayne Garrett writes, quote, It's not that other forms of sexual immorality are less evil. Rather, it is that the focus of this text in the Ten Commandments is not on describing generically every kind of sin. The focus of the Ten Commandments is on sins that destroy the fabric of society among the covenant people. There are other sexual sins, but our attention should be given to the special place of marriage in human society and how adultery destroys that institution. Now, before we forget, marriage was instituted before the fall. Marriage was an institution of God that was given before Adam and Eve sinned. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper uh, fit for him. And then Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This happens 
before Genesis 3. Marriage is a good gift of God before the fall even took place. And let's also not forget the very first commandment that God gave in the garden was a command to be fruitful and multiply. How cool is that? God commands Adam and Eve to have sex. And obedience to that command will create human flourishing, societal growth. The commandment is for our good and for his glory. The biblical view of sex, hear me clearly, begins with acknowledging that our sexuality is a gift from God. Physical union between a husband and wife was God's idea. It is God's plan. Philip Ryken uh, is very helpful here. I want to quote him at length about the importance of um, sex and marriage. He says, quote, Why is adultery in all its forms forbidden? Not because sex is bad, but because it is designed to be such a powerful force for good. Sex is like superglue. Young people, write it down. Sex is like superglue. When used properly, intercourse seals the bond of matrimony. It is the glue that helps hold marriage secure. Tim Keller calls it covenant cement. This is why husbands and wives are required to have sexual relations. The Bible says, quote, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive each other. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3 and 5. God has made us sexual beings to seal the love between husband and wife. Their sexual union cements their total spiritual communion. Hear this clearly. Whenever sex is divorced from the total life commitment, it loses its true purpose and its highest joy. C.S. Lewis makes an analogy like this. He says, The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and a wife are to be regarded as a single organism. The male and the female were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined together. He says, The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual union, from all the other kinds of union that were intended to go along and make up the total union between a man and a woman. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than there's something wrong with the pleasure of eating. Now catch the analogy. It means that you must not try to isolate that pleasure and try and get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing the food and spitting it out. It was meant to go together. The food nourishes your body. It has more purposes than just the pleasure of how it tastes. And so it is with sex. Whenever people try and isolate the pleasures of sex, they always end up harming themselves and others. 
Since sex is like super glue, squeezing it out at the wrong time or in the wrong place always creates an awful mess. The wrong things get joined together, and getting them unstuck again tears at the soul. This is why adultery is forbidden. It's because sex is a great force for good, but only when used to join a man and a woman in marriage. God knows the power of the gift of sex, and it is for our benefit, and that is why he confines it to the marriage bed. Hebrews 13, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. However, if we refuse to listen to the one who made us, our creator, I want to sound the warning today. Adultery has severe consequences. Adultery has severe consequences. Jonathan Edwards once said, adultery is the most serious breach of trust that anyone can commit. Letter B in your outlines if you're following along. Adultery is a sin against all three persons of the Trinity. It's a rejection of God the Father and his institution of marriage and the good provision of a spouse that he has given us. For Christians, it is a rejection of the Son, who redeemed us by his blood, and by virtue of our baptism, we are joined as members of Christ, and it makes our members members of a sexually immoral person. Think of 1 Corinthians six fifteen, where Paul says, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. It's a sin against the Son, and for the Christian, it is also a sin against the Spirit. Also in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So in addition to being this Trinitarian sin, Thomas Watson also calls it a thievish sin, a thievish sin. He says, quote, it is the highest sort of theft. The adulterer steals from his neighbor that which is more than his goods or his estate. He steals his wife who is flesh of his flesh. Do you remember when the prophet Nathan came to David And he told the analogy of the little lamb, the last little lamb that this guy had, and it was taken from him. And David says, that's a terrible dude. You need to to get him. And Nathan says, you're that guy. You, You took Uriah's wife. It's a thievish sin. Letter D, it debases a person. It makes us resemble the beast who merely reduce ourselves to sexual pleasures. Letter E, it's destructive to the body. Proverbs 5, verses 8 through 13, keep your way far from her that is a, uh, a prostitute or a, a harlot. Do not go near to the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers 
or incline my ear to my instructors? Are you listening? Adultery can be a drain on finances. Think of the prodigal son. He wasted all of his father's inheritance on prostitutes and reckless living. Not to mention the blackmail letters that come sometimes when you have adultery enter the picture. Letter G, adultery destroys your reputation. Proverbs 6, 32 and 33. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Letter H, adultery incurs temporal judgment. That is judgment in this life. In the Old Testament, it would have been death. Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 24. But in any age, it has always produced the rage of the lover's spouse. Watch out. They're coming. Proverbs 6, 34. Jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes his revenge. And in the New Testament, it results in church discipline. More on that in a moment. Letter I. Adultery sows discord. It destroys peace and love. What Thomas Watson calls the two best flowers that grow in a family, peace and love. It will set a husband against a wife and a wife against a husband. Letter J, adultery damns the soul when one is unrepentant. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and on the list goes, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, except for repentance. Because I'm going to go later and tell you, Paul says, but you were like that. I was like that. Such were some of us, but we've been washed. So there's hope. There's hope coming. I know we're heavy right now. Trust me, none of the commandments have been easy to get up here and preach. I want to preach what God's word says, but this is what it says. And then most hauntingly, perhaps, letter K, adultery potentially destroys the soul of another, killing two at once. Far worse than being a thief. Think of it. If a thief robs a man, let's say he even takes the victim's life, that victim may just as well go to heaven a happy man, his soul right with God, just as if he had died in his bed. However, when one commits adultery, he endangers the soul of another and deprives her of salvation insofar as in him lies, Thomas Watson says. We are dragging somebody else's soul into danger with God if they will not repent of their sin as well. What a fearful thing to be the instrument that draws another toward hell. This litany of severe consequences only goes to further show as we flip the coin the importance with which God views the institution of marriage. Kevin DeYoung says, quote, sex and marriage are two of God's greatest gifts. I hope you've heard that a few times today. No relationship can be as intimate, sweet, life-giving, joy-filling as the marital relationship. And no experience can be as intimate and powerful within that marriage relationship as sex. So of course, the devil is going after sex and marriage. We should expect confusion, misunderstanding, perversion, and pain, not because sex and marriage are bad or not worth the trouble, but precisely because they're so good. 
They're God's good gifts. And God's best gifts are the ones most apt to be twisted and perverted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we have to understand, church, that one of the main reasons God forbids adultery is because marriage has been designed by God to demonstrate an even greater spiritual reality. Christ's love for the church. So looked at positively then, marriage is a gospel issue. This means that any violation of the husband-wife relationship, it impacts the way we see the relationship between Christ and the church. A well-known passage in Ephesians speaks to this. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 31, says, in quoting Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says this, this mystery is profound. What mystery? The mystery of a one flesh union between a man and a wife. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The purity of the institution of marriage beyond its benefits to society and beyond avoiding the consequences, the purity of the institution of marriage will result in clarity about the most important reality in the universe. That Jesus Christ unconditionally loves his bride, that he sacrificially died for her and will never leave her. He is purifying her with his word. Jesus is the quintessential husband, and the church is to be a purified bride. This is why it was not surprising for me to find in the Leonardtown Baptist Church Constitution an article about marriage and sexuality. An article in our church constitution about marriage and sexuality. That's because marriage is a gospel issue. Let me read to you Article 5 of the Leonardtown Baptist Church Constitution. Marriage is a major focus of teaching in God's Word, as well as, it gets it right here, a picture of Christ's relationship with His church. Consequently, Leonardtown Baptist Church believes and subscribes to the following doctrinal positions regarding marriage and sexuality. Number one, the term marriage has only one meaning, and that is marriage sanctioned by God, which joins one man and one woman in a single, exclusive, lifetime union as delineated in Scripture. That's why when I'm thinking properly, you will often hear me say something like so-called same-sex marriage. It's what the world calls same-sex marriage, but there is one definition of marriage, and it's scriptural. Number two, God intends sexual intimacy to occur only between a man and a woman who are married to each other, and there should be no sexual activity outside of marriage. Number three, this is our constitution. Any form of sexual immorality, including but not limited to adultery, fornication, homosexuality, polygamy, bisexual conduct, bestiality, incest, pornography, any attempt to change one's sex or disagreement with one's sex at birth is sinful and offensive to God. Number four, God offers forgiveness, hear it, 
and restoration, hear it, to all who confess and forsake their sin, seeking his mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. Such were some of you. Such was I. Number five, every person must be afforded compassion, love, kindness, respect, and dignity. Hateful and harassing behavior or attitudes directed toward any individual are neither in accord with Scripture nor the doctrines of the church and are to be repudiated. We believe that in order to preserve the function and integrity of the church as the local body of Christ and to provide a biblical role model to church members in the community, that's an important line, it is imperative that all members persons employed by the church in any capacity, or those who serve as volunteers, abide by and agree to this statement on marriage and sexuality and conduct themselves accordingly. Church, I want you to hear me very clearly. As long as I am your senior pastor, I intend for us to abide by this constitution. Not because Leonardtown Baptist Church wrote it, but because I believe it is based on God's word. Furthermore, I intend to lovingly lead our church toward the application of our bylaws. You didn't expect all this today, I know. And scripture. It would be the application of scripture. Just as the Constitution was based on it, when we get to the bylaws section based on scripture, as they relate to church discipline regarding this kind of immoral and unchristian conduct, described in our very constitution and in this seventh commandment. Article 1, section D, number 2 of our bylaws. If any member continues in offensive conduct by reason of immoral or unchristian conduct, which would have been previously described, by persistent breach of covenant vows or by gross impropriety or misdemeanor in office, by willfully promoting discord in the church, the church may censure, reprimand, or exclude the individual from membership. And this action should not be taken until due notice has been given of the charges made, full opportunity provided for the person to speak on his or her behalf, and all such pr- proceedings pervaded by a spirit of Christian kindness and forbearance, as in Matthew 18, write this down, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 11, and Hebrews 12, 5 through 17. There's the basis in Scripture. However, finding that the welfare of the church will be best served by the exclusion of a member, the church may take this action by three-quarter vote of the members present at a business meeting, and the church may proceed to declare the offender to be no longer in covenant membership with the church. Note, this discipline, section D begins is the exercise of the authority that Jesus Christ has committed to the church. We say we are Jesus-ruled, elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally accountable. The highest court is the church. The visible church has been given this authority by Christ for the preservation of its purity It's peace and good order. And all members of the church are under the care, all members, including me, under the care and subject to the discipline of the church. 
The ultimate goal of discipline is to train Christians to be self-disciplined so that they may share in the holiness of God. Go to 1 Timothy 5 and see an accusation against an elder not to be brought without two or three witnesses. But if it's true, you take it to the church. Why? The scripture says very clearly, so others will fear. So we learn together what it means to be obedient to his word and so that they share in the holiness of God. And furthermore, church discipline is always filled with, hear this, please, please, hope for restoration. As was the case in the church in Corinth. Article 1, section D, number 4 says, any individual whose membership has been terminated may request to be restored to covenant membership after meeting with the elders and by a three-quarters vote of the members present at a business meeting upon the recommendation of the elders. So what does that look like? What does that meeting with the elders look like? Prayerfully, it becomes a conversation about that person's genuine repentance and a visible fruit of repentance is evident in this person's life. And that would bring us no greater joy than to see that person restored to fellowship as it did with Paul in 2 Corinthians when he said, you know what? The discipline has been enough. I see the repentance in him. Bring him back. And it would bring me great joy that you would restore him to fellowship because he has repented of his sin. Friends, here at Leonardtown Baptist, we say we are people of the book. We say we believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. I want to challenge us just a little bit to not presume that we know better than the Lord about the methods he prescribes, go back to Matthew 18, for confronting sinful behavior and the importance of congregational accountability for that persistent, unrepentant sin. We will never go wrong trusting the word of God to guide our steps. And discipline is not a bad thing. Proverbs 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And the words of our Lord Jesus, Revelation 3, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I confess, as a new pastor, I, along with the other elders, have been slow to bring cases of discipline to the church. And candidly, there have been some matters that probably should have been brought to the church, but have not been. But Leonardtown, we need to make every effort to maintain the purity of the church. We are called to demonstrate the beauty of holiness of marriage and sexual purity for the world that they need to see. We should be different. The world says it's okay to live with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married. The world says it's okay to divorce because you're just not happy anymore. 
The world says it's okay to have sex before marriage. The world winks at pornography. Not so in and amongst the church. It's in the Constitution. It's in the bylaws. It's in God's word. Do you want to know God's will? Are you seeking God's will for your life? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us for impurity, but in holiness. He has called us in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. This is not easy for me to preach, but this is God's will for us. Purity. Holiness. He gives his Holy Spirit. Thank you, Brother Allen. He gives his Holy Spirit to us to help us obey. What kind of gospel are we sharing if we allow professing church members to tarnish the picture of the gospel with unrepentant, persistent sexual immorality? I'm going to uh, go on from here, but I want to read through these next section very quickly. I want to share with you Thomas Watson's advice for obeying. Advice for obedience. How can we avoid this problem? Stay far away, letter A. How far is too far, young person? I want to share with you this. I've singing about this this morning. Um, David Platt's best advice to me. Just remember, if you don't marry that girl young man. She's potentially going to marry somebody else and will be their wife. Would you want somebody else to do what you're about to do with this young woman with your wife? That might be too far. That's the way to think. How far is too far when you're dating? Just remember, if she's not your bride, she's going to be somebody else's bride. And would you want somebody else doing to your bride what you're about to do to this young woman. Okay, let's just kind of think that way about it. So stay far away, Scripture says, from temptation, tempter, temptress. Proverbs 5, verse 8, keep your way far from her, that's the prostitute, and do not go down near the door of her house. Let her be, look after your eyes. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Um, the Sunday school song, be careful little eyes what you see, comes to my mind. Let's watch what we see. One statistic I read says the average American views sexual material more than 10,000 times a year. You've been a little like nervous in your seat the number of times I've said the word sex in this sermon. 10,000 times a year you're soaking it in on the television. And by a ratio of 10 to 1, The couplings on TV involve sex outside of marriage. The silent infection of pornography in the church is a deadly thing. 
It denigrates women. It damages relationships. It destroys a man's spiritual ability to lead. Men, let's get, let's get pornography out of the church. The Puritan Thomas Watson rightly said that pornographic pictures secretly convey poison to the heart. Look after your lips. Let her see. Take care for an unseemly word that can kindle thoughts and impure motives. It can be the bellows that blows up the fire of lust. Watch what you're saying around your coworker. Watch your mouth and see that you don't find yourself propelling yourself forward into something you should avoid. Letter D, look after your heart. Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the wellspring or the springs of life. Proverbs 4.23. Look after your attire. Grant, you're doing great. Thanks for keeping up. Look after your attire. Proverbs 7.10 says, Behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute and wily of heart. Ladies especially, hear me. How you dress matters. Letter F. Take heed of evil company. Bad company, corrupt Good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Letter G, take heed of sexualized dancing. Now, before you think I'm going all footloose on you, <laughs> there's dancing, okay? My family, we, we'll put on Alexa, we'll say, play Move It from Madagascar. I like to move it, move, right, right? All right, so there's dancing. I mean, my dad at our wedding, he literally cut a rug. I mean, this brand new carpet would have been shreds with my dad dancing. So there's dancing. It's in the Bible. Dancing. It's okay. And then there's sexualized dancing. And you know what I mean. Without a show of hands. Did you hear that? (laughs) Without a show of hands. How many prom nights turned into regrettable hookups, if not for you, for a friend you know? Wait, did Pastor Jason just say not to go to prom? No, I did not say don't go to prom. Did Pastor Jason say, be careful not to inflame your date with passionate lust leading to bad decisions and sexual immorality? Yeah, I'll go on the record for that. Letter H, watch out for excess in diet. So if you thought Thomas Watson was old-fashioned on the dancing, get ready for this one. He says, quote, When gluttony and drunkenness lead the van, chambering and wantonness bring up the rear. How about some old words for you? When gluttony and drunkenness lead the train, watch out because right behind it, chambering, going in the bedroom, and wantonness, lack of good common sense, is coming up the rear. Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride excess of food, and prosperous ease. Man, that sounds a lot like our country. But did not aid the poor and needy. Also like our country. Thank you, brother. The flesh pampered, he says, quote, is an apt to rebel. The flesh pampered is apt to rebel. Paul says, I discipline my body. Keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This next one is huge. Watch out for idleness. Watch out for being idle. When a man is out of calling, that's the old Puritan word for their vocation, their job. When, when they're not working, they're idle. He's ready to receive temptation. And what came to mind was David, right? King David, at a time when he should have been at war, was in Jerusalem. Walking the roof doesn't seem like a bad thing to do, does it? But he shouldn't have been there. 
He had a job to do leading his country in battle, and he was idle, and he was fraught with temptation. Letter J, have a chaste, entire love to your own spouse. Letter, uh, Proverbs 5, 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Letter K, labor to get the fear of God in your hearts. By steadfast love, Proverbs 16, 6, and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And listen, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Hopefully also the section on the consequences is a deterrent for you. And letter L, delight in the word of God. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And letter M, pray, pray that God would strengthen you in your fight to mortify the sin of lust and any desire you have to commit adultery. Pray for God to strengthen your love for your spouse. And as we close today, I want to just acknowledge this commandment is heavy. It's hard. And the battle of our generation wages war right here with regards to sexual autonomy and sexual morality. But there is hope for commandment breakers like me, like you. Remember at the outset, we said we can't obey the commands perfectly especially when Christ magnifies them to the level of our hearts. God sees our hearts, and if we are all honest, we know everyone in this room has broken this commandment or one of the others. But there is hope for commandment breakers. The catechism asks, can anyone keep the law perfectly? No, since the fall, no human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly Carrying on the logic, it then asks, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we know the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. Listen, thankfully, God gives grace to sinners who repent of their lust, of their adultery, and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Having listed the various kinds of people that were excluded from the kingdom. Remember, it could damn your soul to hell. Paul goes on to say, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of our transgression of this commandment or any of the commandments. David, when he committed adultery and murder, like if we took that verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and said, well, David's out, murderer and adultery, no kingdom of God, except such for some of you, like him. He was forgiven and he claimed forgiveness by the blood of a lamb. Purge me with hyssop, Psalm 51, 7, and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And we too can appeal to the blood of Jesus Christ for forgiveness even for adultery. I'll close with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin. But God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside of the love of God and outside of his kingdom because of adultery. 
No. If you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin, cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and the grace of God, you can be forgiven and assured of pardon. Now, Lloyd-Jones could have stopped there, but then he added this comment. He said, but hear the words of our blessed Lord. Go and sin no more.